Welcome to episode 68 of FRT, the IF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, and I'm joined today by my colleague Conan French and our special guest John Collins of FS Vector. And between us, we have the three Washington area jurisdictions covered. I'm at home in Old Town, Alexandria, on the Virginia side of the Potomac River. Conan is in DC proper, in Georgetown, close to the famous university. And John is in peaceful retreat on the eastern shore of Maryland, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's also a good opportunity for us to test and compare the relative telecommunication connectivity across the region's three jurisdictions. Our focus today is on digital currencies, where there's been a lot happening. It's great to have John with us with his expertise in this field. John is a partner at FS Vector, a leading fintech advisory business in Washington, which works with each of early stage, growth stage and mature businesses across their varying needs. FS Vector is also located right around the corner from the IF offices. So in more ordinary times, we could very easily do this in person. Among those various businesses that FS Vector works with, John is advising Calibra, and Calibra, of course, is a central piece of the Libra initiative, all of which means that John is not giving us the insider view from Libra, but that he is extremely well credentialed as understanding that initiative far better than most. So John, thank you for joining us and welcome back to FRT. Thanks for having me, Brad and Conan. It's great to be back. Wish we were in person, but maybe next time. Indeed we do, although I suspect you're in quite charming conditions over there at St. Michael's on the Eastern Shore. You're joining us from that very peaceful location across Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Normally, I think a couple of hours drive from DC, but hopefully a little bit less with the lighter traffic at the moment. Before we move on, I'm keen to get your thoughts of what conditions are like on the ground over there and around Chesapeake Bay at the moment. Before I moved to Washington, my sense of Chesapeake Bay geography was very much drawn from the vivid descriptions in Tom Clancy novels. And it's probably a little bit sacrilegious that you're in a holiday spot in Maryland rather than in your native Delaware. But tell us, how are things in St. Michael's? Well, you know, if you want to run a campaign for a town commissioner's slot, you are you are well on your way uh, selling the selling the town as you are. Uh, it's uh, it is very nice uh, and quiet right now. St. Michael's is known, I guess, among some as a, a boating town, sailing town. I, I do not own a boat, uh, nor do I know how to sail, but I have an affinity for the lifestyle. But that is also something you can't do now. So there's not a lot of boaters and sailors in town, although apparently you can kayak. That is an exception to the stay-at-home order. So you see a lot more kayaking uh, happening down here. Good to know. I'll have to keep that in mind. Now, I said at the outset that there's a lot happening in the digital currency space with Libra, with CELO, PBOC, among others. It's a really interesting time, particularly set against the backdrop of the accelerating trend towards cashlessness that we're seeing right around the world with COVID-19. Conan, could I get you to start for us by setting the scene a little with a quick overview of the landscape before we then dive in with John on Libra? Thanks, Brad. Yeah, uh, Libra, you know, clearly is the highest profile project uh, in the world, I think, both because of Facebook's involvement with their more than 2 billion customers around the world and the fact that it's a retail and public facing proposal that in the first generation had some really sort of profound implications for um, whole swaths of the financial sector and, and global regulatory framework. Um, but be, beyond Libra, there's been um, you know, incredible activity for really reaching back over the last five years, um, but it's really been catalyzed and accelerated by the Libra proposal over last year. And um, many of the retail-facing initiatives have received a lot of attention and focus, but there's also been a lot of work going on in wholesale and financial market infrastructure work. And that's one of the pieces that's probably received a lot less uh, coverage or discussion. So whether you talk about the um, utility settlement coin initiative now taken forward with the finality organization that has more than a dozen of the 
global banks of the world working with central banks on uh, uh, currency uh, denominated tokens and all the major currencies of the world or JP Morgan coin working on um, wholesale and settlement solutions. Uh, many of the central banks, as they look at what they might do with the next generation instrument in CBDC, um, are also looking at whether they launch something that's retail or, or wholesale. And I think that that's one of the things that um, these new technologies have done is really blur those lines of what is commercial bank money, what is central bank money, uh, and the different design parameters. So there's sort of one term of digital assets out there. Um, but underneath that, whether you're looking at something that's account-based, token-based, is it programmable, is it not? What are the privacy applications? You know, these are uh, a lot of the, the design considerations that are driving kind of this wide spectrum of initiatives. So we look at those settlement instruments. We see um, next week we'll also be looking at the Bank of England's proposal and their paper on stable coins and whether the Bank of England is really focusing on a wholesale or a retail level and sort of what's that role of those intermediaries. So that's the broad landscape that we see is, again, work happening in a lot of um, different corners. But importantly, we think it's been really accelerated and uh, focused um, by this proposal from uh, Libra and uh, uh, the associated organizations, including Facebook. Yeah, it's a really good point. And a lot of the conversations that we've had about central bank digital currencies recently have made the point that it was really Libra's first white paper that galvanized a lot of that activity last year. But if we delve now a bit further into the Libra refresh, if you like, with the 2.0 white paper, that of course was published on April 16. There's an IIF briefing note available for IIF members on our website published the following day. And also, of course, the appointment of Stuart Levy last week as the new Libra CEO, uh, Stuart formerly of the US Treasury and more recently Chief Legal Officer at HSBC. So, John, if we delve a bit further now into Libra, and I guess one striking feature of that 2.0 white paper was the apparent positioning directly to become a technology partner for central bank digital currencies. Can you tell us a bit more about that, about what, what you think Libra might be envisaging with that and perhaps whether that's a, a key component of the Libra business model going forward? So I'm not sure about business model, but but I do think it's a it's a recognition of a few things. Um, I think the first is you know throughout the paper, throughout sort of the entire process, the association I think it's been pretty clear that they want to work with regulators and they want to help where needed. And I think that is sort of indicative in in uh, that proposal around CBDCs. I think it, the second piece is. You know, I think they're trying to make clear they're not trying to compete. You know, they're not trying to compete with the U.S. dollar or the euro. And frankly, for a number of reasons, couldn't compete, uh, which we can talk about uh, later. But uh, the third piece, which I think is really where, you know, it gets to sort of what Conan was just talking about. And I think it's going to come up throughout this conversation is noting an aspirational vision and an expectation that the future of payments networks are going to include public and private, anarchic like Bitcoin and others, and any other flavor that that you can think of. Um, and you know they will need to work together, or at least they should work together in some way. Um, and so, I mean, I read it as an intent to and 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 a desire to develop, you know, a fully interoperable network. Uh, that you know, if it's not future proof, it, it is perhaps uh, you know future ready. 
So the, the 2.0 paper highlighted some of the major market currencies um, that were indicated for single currency coins, um, US dollar, Euro, Singapore. Um, there are also many CBDC developments underway in uh, smaller second tier markets, for instance, the Bahama sand dollar, and we spoke to uh, Governor Roll about that a couple of weeks ago. And so how do you see um, the scope of the Libra single currency coins uh, and that integration with CBDCs for some of those markets that the 2.0 paper didn't mention specifically. In other words, they tended to focus on the um, uh, you know G7 currencies, um, but there are many smaller markets that are sort of more advanced, and they left that as as uh, blank in the paper. Um, do you think that you'll see more of this interoperability come forward? Is this something that has been discussed uh, in forums that you've been in? Yeah, you know. I don't know exactly. I mean, I can I can say that I think the reach of, of any project in the larger cryptocurrency blockchain space is really contingent on, you know, regulatory guidance and clarity, both both at the supranational level as well as, you know, the local jurisdictions. And I think we're getting a much better sense in recent months, in part because of Libra, of where the areas of specific focus and concern are. From an operating standpoint, whether you look at nodes or other, you know, very specific technical aspects of some of these networks, but the tough part, obviously, is really putting the rules in place in a way that makes um, various projects, again, whether they're protocols or their exchanges or, or some other business line, uh, comfortable. Um, I think we're moving in that direction, uh, but you know, any project needs to be deliberate in their launch. Uh, you know, I, I hear of projects, you know, and I'll be very blunt, you know, in certain jurisdictions, and I know some of them are real, but I don't think all of them are. And it's pretty clear that in some cases they are vaporware or ideas or, you know, marketing uh, plays. But I think if there is this desire to make payments easier and faster and cheaper across the globe, then you have to start somewhere. So it would make sense to me that you would start in the places that you have the greatest potential for uptake, the greatest clarity, and the greatest potential to solve real meaningful problems. And, you know, that could be individual jurisdictions, or it could be, you know, looking at, at various corridors. Taking that point further, John, and, and I think it relates a little to, to what you said earlier about you know, not trying to compete with the US dollar, not trying to compete with the euro. I guess it's, it's striking to me how we see, you know, I think Libra has really heeded the, a lot of the concerns that central banks had about monetary sovereignty, at least insofar as those inter, those major economy markets go. But it kind of leaves some interesting questions as to what this might mean in a place like you know, Argentina or Indonesia or Turkey, for instance, and whether the issue of monetary sovereignty could still be an issue in those places if, firstly, there's not a major market, uh, not a, a local single currency coin, but also where in those places where there has historically been a lot of currency volatility, there could be an attraction to want to use the, the Libra multi-currency coin as an alternative or as a safer store of value, perhaps, than the local fiat. Yeah. Is that a, an issue, do you think, that, that we could still see the monetary sovereignty issue having been largely solved, I think, in this most recent white paper for the major markets? Does it still remain as an issue for some of those emerging markets countries? I mean, let me make a larger point first, and then I'll answer, or I'll try to Brad, answer that yeah. that question specifically. But I, you know, I think look, the the white paper 2.0 is is just that it is 2.0. Um, I think you know they've the association's been clear. They have a new CEO now. There's more to be done. 
there's more discussions to be had with regulators on, on the on the larger design topics as well as sort of the implementation. And I mean, look, you can you can play various simulations out and all of the ifs this happens, then would this happen? And not to diminish that, because if anything has shown us in the past few months, sometimes the ifs do happen and we need to be prepared. The unexpected happens much more quickly than we otherwise might have expected. But, you know, for me, it comes down to there are a number of very novel and interesting things about the, the Libra proposal. But one of the things that is not necessarily interesting is the idea of it being a stable coin in and of itself. You know, there are a number of stable coins out there currently, you know, billions of dollars um, in various stable coins. Uh, you know, we haven't seen Tether supplant the national currency in even in places where uh, there is great disruption. Uh, you haven't seen that with, with Bitcoin, even though that was one of the arguable, you know, the arguments from proponents that it would function as a safe haven asset in, in markets where um, they see economic disruption. And that hasn't happened for any number of, of different reasons. To put it bluntly, and again, this is, this is my perspective, if there is an emerging market where a multi-currency coin or a stable coin is now becoming the means by which people are, you know, engaging in commerce. I imagine any number of very bad things have occurred that we would have a bigger problems on our hands and B, I think those problems would likely make it very unlikely that you would actually be able to use that technology in a way that could supplant the the national currency and the sovereignty of of a market's um, you know monetary system. Well, I think you know one of the concerns that could come in there is that the association could provide because of their business model they could provide um, some incentives uh, to use as well uh, that might drive traffic in a way where there wouldn't be the same incentives in in a local cash instrument. So I think that that's an example of as this new technology opens up new possibilities, people need to look at some of those those edge cases. And do you, do you think that that multi-currency coin that you envision might become redundant as these new technologies are, are developed and deployed by more central banks around the world? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, sh- sure. I, 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 think, I think certainly. I mean, you know, if, if you do have robust CBDCs that are operating um, you know, across the world by various central banks, and you have, you know, significant uptake in jurisdictions, you know, does the multi-currency coin, whether it's Libra or some other variation become, you know, simply a bridge currency between those, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure. So, you know, that that's certainly a, a, a potential, the potential is also for redundancy. Um, but, you know, I think it remains unclear. And I, I, I think, you know, if you were to talk to the association or, or folks um, in the association, I, I think they would they would say that, too. This is very much a an experiment that has a lot of potential, but, you know, it remains to be seen. Might uh, switch gears a little bit and move to the topic of AML and financial crime. And, John, I thought this was a, a really striking feature, really, of what came out in, in the revelations in, in White Paper 2.0. It was very much a, a conscious move to, I guess, get more serious and credible in the eyes of a lot of the public sector officials in the space of financial crime and AML CTF. 
And I think the appointment of, of Stuart Levy as CEO really reinforces that, particularly given the, the background that he's had both at, at Treasury and at HSBC. So I think there's some really significant innovations in the approach to AML, strengthening controls, uh, and I think having reporting and detection frameworks that will give those official sector authorities a lot more confidence. The part that I guess I've got to admit I'm not so clear on is, is how this all works together in practice and in terms of things like the economics of KYC. And I guess the, the, the lingering confusion I, I still have personally, at least, is based on the fact that K, KYC is not cheap and, and KYC does cost money for whoever is undertaking those checks. And I'm, I'm not clear yet in the, uh, I guess, the revenue structure or the business model of the Libra network, how those who perform those KYC checks are necessarily going to be the ones that get remunerated out of the system. Can you tell us a bit more about that, or am I missing the point, or is is this still perhaps to evolve or emerge a bit further? Well, I, I think it is going to, you know, uh, going to evolve and, and emerge further. I think, you know, maybe it would be helpful, um, you know, the, the, to to sort of run through some of the big developments or pieces of of how the compliance aspect is laid out in the in the new white paper, and primarily what you see is. There's establishment of an FIU, Financial Intelligence Unit, that will be run by the association that will function as all other FIUs do very similarly. And obviously, you know, the appointment of um, the CEO, you know, Stuart is, is, is obviously someone who is well positioned to help execute on something like that. Uh, you know, you see really clear and robust governance over layers, several layers of network participants and laying out their specific responsibilities. Um, you know, I think the the other pieces that didn't get as much attention are, you know, some of the the pieces around unhosted wallets and how they will work, how there will be protocol level controls built in to, you know, restrict certain addresses based on IP addresses and and, and other sorts of things, which is unique to have those sorts of controls built into a protocol that that really hasn't been the case in, in um, any of these other uh, you know networks that have been developed so far. I don't think we're reinventing the wheel here. You know they seem to be really relying on you know existing regulated institutions, whether they're banks or various crypto enterprises. And you know we talked earlier about how there still remains a lot of need for clarity you know across the world and in specific places. One thing that has been the most flushed out, though, is certainly AML. And so I think they rely quite a bit on, on those established entities where the, where the regulations um, seem to be already you know, in place. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I would point people to, to sort of that protocol level piece and then the, the unhosted wallets. You know, there's some interesting stuff in there, which is talking about transaction limits and amounts, which, you know, is to say that unhosted wallets are not totally an anathema, right? Like you can have them if we're following a risk-based approach, like how does money laundering work? And can we create various transaction limits and controls that would reach the policy goal of anti-money laundering, but also allow for the financial inclusion and access uh, opportunities that an unhosted wallet might present? I was just curious if you had seen any change in perception around the unhosted wallets uh, with the in the 2.0 proposal, it also um, has sort of ruled out moving to a fully distributed network in the future. And I think it was the combination of a fully distributed network and an unhosted wallet 
I think was a, an even greater concern. Have you seen sort of a downtick on on that issue uh, because uh, 2.0 took um, the evolution to a fully distributed network permissionless off the table? Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's that, Conor, although that's, that's a good point. You know, I do think, you know, if you look at, at what is laid out in that white paper and the updated one, it's very clear that a lot of not only like very creative and thoughtful policy thinking went into it, but, you know, there's some real technical implementations. Like there's been a lot invested in it. And I think, you know, there's been a number of conversations with FIUs across the world. And, you know, that I think likely played a big role in the construction of this. So if the, if there's a downtick, it's, it's, it's my guess, it's like multi-factor in, in why um, there might be less concern on that piece than there was, you know, when the, when the project first, you know, was announced. And a lot of the concern in the, the first 1.0 version of the proposal was also that it was Facebook that was bringing this forward. Again, more than 2 billion customers around the world, incredible market concentration, the ability to leverage or uh, sort of limit or, or incentivize use of their wallet over other wallets, competitiveness issues. Um, to what degree do you think or do you feel like some of those concerns have been addressed and responded to in the 2.0 version of the proposal? Yeah, well, like, you know, the, the the proposal also lays out, you know, a much more detailed governance of the association and how the association will function or, or, or not function. And yeah, certainly Facebook played uh, le- a leading role in, in putting this group together. Um, but I think really, you know, it, it is going to be a network that is going to allow for any number of different kinds of institutions to to build upon it. And so whether it was Facebook or just sort of the overall sophistication of the companies at the table, uh, I think that definitely is what what piqued people's interests. But you know, I think providing the the greater level of detail, um, you know, in terms of the governance and and how responsibilities will be separated and how incentives will be separated out, I think is is important. And I think what was it, the Financial Stability Board report that came out whatever the day before or after the white paper came out, laid out a lot of, you know, their recommendations for how governance of, of things that looked very similar to a Libra type construction should work from their vantage point. And you saw a lot of that replicated in the white paper. Yeah, it was striking to us just how, how much the white paper seemed to be directly addressing a number of the issues that are in that FSB stablecoins consultation. Clearly the the efforts and the engagement with the FSB and other officials had Born a lot of fruit in terms of the preparedness that uh, and the thought that went into that white paper, certainly. Perhaps now if we widen out a little bit from Libra to the broader landscape, and Conan, you talked a little bit at the outset of some of the, the broader activity we're seeing across the, the topic, across the ecosystem, but could you perhaps give your sense of what you think are the most significant initiatives beyond Libra that we should be looking at and, and watching out for in the coming months? Well, in um, in the hearings last summer uh, that David Marcus um, was called before the U.S. Uh, Senate and House, you know, he said, if, if we don't move forward with this, uh, sort of China will. And I think that's one of the most um, sort of awaited developments is we start to see screenshots and testing activity and the rollout of the PBOC uh, initiative for a new um, digital instrument that would be used across the Alibaba and Tencent payment networks uh, and other 
payment networks um, domestically in China. So clearly, you know, all eyes on China as the PBOC initiative uh, begins its rollout and testing um, this month. I think you also see the Bank of England uh, moving forward or accelerating their public consultation and considerations of what uh, they might launch. Uh, the eKrona initiative from the Riksbank in Sweden has been sort of one of the very public and, and early moving initiatives. And then, of course, we have sort of the utility settlement coin finality initiative that has been working in the background on the wholesale level and financial market infrastructure. Similarly, the JP Morgan coin is is out and live uh, and you know, may um, sort of evolve over time. So those, are, I think, are some of the nodes that uh, we're watching. John, I was wondering what the perspective on the market that you have. I think you touched on it. I mean, you know, you named some of the the, the biggest and I think most exciting projects that are that are out there. You know, CeeLo, Clearmatic, Finality, and and a number of of others. You know, and the delineation between the folks that are working on the whole pa- wholesale payment side versus the the retail payment side, which you know, getting adoption for retail payments is really, really, really difficult for any number of different reasons, as you guys know. But I do think. The China piece from like a political perspective and a regulatory perspective, you know, certainly has amped up the attention of policymakers on Capitol Hill and and elsewhere in the U.S. You know, to go back to the emerging market discussion we had, to me, it's not necessarily a concern that Libra or any other coin, uh, private sector coin, would become, you know, the uh, currency du jour. It would be that, you know, the digital wand would, right? Uh, so, so I think there is a much greater sense of attention from U.S. policymakers about that potential threat. You know, it, are we falling behind? Um, and so that is that is speeding up. I think hopefully some of the clarity that's needed, and it's certainly speeding up some of the political attention at, at higher levels that's been needed to help sort of drive the industry forward. John, I think you're right, certainly that big focus on the PBOC. It reminds me a little of the discussion that we had on FRT back on episode 53 with Chris Giancarlo when we were at the Singapore FinTech Festival, and we talked a bit about the digital dollar with him. And obviously in that context, we talked about the the Chinese developments. And as as Conan described, the official line that we hear is that, that the PBOC development is intended as a domestic retail payment solution but clearly it would have some potential to be used in a much wider array of, of, uh, of scenarios or of use cases. And I certainly think of it as potentially being something with wider application across the One Belt, One Road, for instance, and where you might have the scenario that we discussed with Christian Carlo of would a corporate that exports to China find itself confronted in the future with the scenario of their, uh, their purchaser no longer paying them in dollars, but rather paying them in a particular PBOC coin series and having concerns about the valuation or the longevity of that particular coin series, and that that may be a source of discomfort or concern for a number of those industrialists exporting into China. Yeah, is, is that sort of the right lens that we need to be uh, assessing or, or looking out for in the PBOC development, that the extent to which it is truly a domestic retail solution or the extent to which these other applications you know, writ large around the world might actually emerge? I think that's spot on. I mean, I share, I share that view. And, you know, I was at a roundtable, I mean, in Washington, probably six months ago, maybe more. And there was a official from the administration there. And the conversation came to sort of 
where does our power truly lie? And, you know, he said, look, the military is not really where our power is. It's, it's our financial system. And we need to, to be wary of falling down on our competitiveness with specifically China. Uh, and I, I, I think that's true. And I mean, hell, I mean, look at, look at where we are now um, with this crisis. We would not be in the relatively, I won't say we're in a good position, but we're in a much better position because of the strength of our financial system than we would have been otherwise. So if you were to think about us not in this strong position, it would likely be a very different country right now. So I think if that message is being driven home to, to policymakers, whether it's on the Hill or elsewhere, that, that you know, there is a threat there, even if small, you're going to see greater investment and attention to um to, to, to the technology and to whether, you know, we do a, a straight U.S. Um, CBDC or, or, or some other sort of means. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us. Very insightful discussion, as always, on, on a very topical space. If I can quickly try and recap a few of the points that I thought stood out. Firstly, I like the way you emphasise that Libra is you know, recognising and not intending to compete with the likes of the U.S. dollar and the euro. In particular, the uh, the way you conveyed it of the recognition that the payment landscape is invariably going to need to include both private and public sector initiatives and the focus on interoperability uh, between those. And I can see that trend towards that integration. It is, uh, to mention Christian Carlo once again, very much what he spoke to us about when he described the, the digital dollar proposal. There's an interesting point you made that there's been stable coins before. And I guess I think of, of Libra a little bit as a, a different or more striking uh, version of that initiative, certainly where I think it has greater reach and, and much more mainstream credibility than some of the more niche crypto developments that have gone before it. But it's an interesting point of context that we should keep in mind. Also, the way that you stressed, of course, that we need to remember that Libra is still at the stage of white paper 2.0. And I guess there is the temptation to perhaps uh, leap ahead to what the final product and implementation might look like. I certainly tend to do that. But it is a, a timely reminder you give us uh, and that it will evolve further, particularly with the appointment of a new CEO. Also, just lastly, I thought the discussion that you focused on there in terms of the PBOC, and it's a great reminder again for us all that whilst we tend to focus sometimes here on the developments that are happening closer to home, the PBOC is, I think, the really striking one that we all have our eyes on from all around the world and one that you know, we expect to see some tangible progress and milestones on in the coming months. We'll talk about that a lot more on FRT in the coming weeks. So, John, thank you for joining us once again on FRT. I hope you stay safe and enjoy the kayaking if you get the chance over there in St. Michael's. Thank you, Brad and Conan. I really appreciate it. And yes, uh, when when we are allowed to travel and do such things and see one another again, you uh, both are invited. Uh, and maybe I'll even have a boat by then. Who knows? <laughs> we'll look forward to it. I also need to give a shout out to our producer, Kate Summer, for successfully juggling the three of us from across our three respective sites today. Ahead on FRT, Conan and I will pick up again with our partners from Deloitte on the Realising the Digital Promise series that the IF and Deloitte are producing. We talked about the first report in that series back on episode 60, and the second report is only a couple of weeks away, so we'll talk shortly about that, looking at some of the key enablers and success factors in digital transformation. We're also going to talk to our partners over at ISDA about their new common domain model for standardising and modernising trade execution. And we're going to continue the discussion about data policy and where some of the impacts of COVID-19 might steer that direction going forward. We had a great discussion recently on episode 66 with David Hardoon in Singapore. We're going to continue that theme this time with Tanvi Singh, the Chief Analytics Officer at Credit Suisse. Please join us again for those upcoming episodes. This is Brad Carr and Conan French signing off for FRT. 